Hello, and welcome to this podcast. In this episode, you will hear ELO Chairman Dr. Rick Gosen interview world-renowned New Testament scholar N.T. Wright in a webinar hosted by ELO on April 7th, 2020, entitled Christian Leadership in the Midst of a Pandemic. Hello, my name is Rick Gosen. I'm chairman of Entrepreneurial Leaders Organization. Welcome to this webinar with N.T. Wright on Christian leadership in the midst of a pandemic. We have people joining us from around the world for this live conversation with N.T. Wright. Before we get started, let me outline some parameters. First of all, we'd like to encourage as many questions as possible. You'll see at the bottom of the screen, there's a Q&A button. Please pose your questions uh, in that forum and we'll try to get to as many questions as possible. I'd also point out that there's also a chat button. The chat will be going throughout the Q&A, but I encourage you not to pose your questions on the chat. NT and I will not be monitoring that. We'll be focused on the Q&A button at the bottom. Secondly, on the chat, I encourage people to introduce themselves, uh, where they're from. We have groups from various parts of the world, from Asia, uh, from the United States, Canada, the UK, literally all over the world, including India. We've already received a question from a friend in India. So please be mindful of that. We really want to have as much dialogue and interaction as we possibly can. Now let me introduce our distinguished guest. N.T. Wright is a well-known theologian who's written many books, uh, most recently a book on the life of Paul, and just a few months ago published a book on the New Testament in its world. N.T. Wright is presently a senior research fellow at Wycliffe Hall at the University of Oxford. In addition, uh, N.T. Wright will also be an adjunct instructor in the ELO Entrepreneurial Leaders Program, which occurs every year at Wycliffe Hall, University of Oxford in August. And uh, despite the present situation, we're hopeful that the course will continue. We'll make a final call in late June, early July, but we're optimistic that we will be able to continue. I'd now like to welcome uh, NT, uh, also known as Tom uh, NT Wright. Hi there. Sorry, I, I'm not I sure coming I'm... through. That's right. Good. Hello. Perfect. Well, Good to be with you. Tom, it's, it's great to have you. And just as a reminder, uh, we have literally hundreds of people from around the world, including church leaders, business leaders who are very uh, keen on hearing your insights in this very challenging time. Before we get started with our uh, list of questions, I wanted to just ask, how are things in Oxford and the UK? Things in Oxford and the UK are very quiet right now. It's, it's eerie. Uh, it's very strange. I am allowed, we are allowed in the UK to go for brief exercise each day. And my wife and I have been taking a walk in the college right opposite where we live. But I also cycle around Oxford because I can get a bit more energy going that way. And cycling around Oxford in a lovely day in April when there's nobody there is is very odd. It's like, I, I don't know, it's not, nothing I've ever experienced. The place should be full of students and tourists and people being busy and going in libraries and shopping and so on. And none of that is happening. So that kind of casts a pall over the whole thing. And then when we hear on the news the number of people dying every day and when our own prime minister is in intensive care right now, um, then naturally we're all kind of reeling with uh, that and everything else that's going on and we're all concerned about our families and all that. I, I read on the news just now that um, the seismologists are saying that they can tell that nobody is moving about in Britain. Um, that they, they, the earth is not quaking in the normal way that it does with, with human movement. That's an extraordinary situation um, and I this is like an odd dream from which we think we will awake, but nobody knows when or how. 
So it's very strange is the answer and quite concerning and quite depressing really in a way. Well, it's interesting because what you described I think is reflective of what's happening here in Vancouver, but from friends around the world, it's odd to think that much of the world is in that same state. Yep, absolutely. Um, before we get to even our list of questions, I'm, I'm glad to report that a question came in via email uh, from a friend in India. So I thought this would be a good opportunity just to uh, show that uh, for all of you in the audience that we're getting questions, they're literally coming from all over the world. So before we get to our whole list, let me just pose this question. Um, I recently heard a theologian responding to the coronavirus crisis saying, we are more closer to the Lord's prayer than ever before in the history of the church. In particular, the reference was made to meaningfully praying, give us today our daily bread. In the current economic scenario in a country such as India, should the church leaders take this route of spiritual trans transcendental response, or should it be more a practical response where leaders take initiative for a collection, mobilizing funds, following Paul's pattern, what he did for the Jerusalem church? So uh, how do you wow. think we should... Well, it seems to me there has to be a holistic response and not all parts of the church can do the same things as one another, both in the same city, but also in the country and worldwide. And it seems to me this is where, and I suspect we'll come back to this several times, it's a call for wisdom. And in the Bible, wisdom doesn't mean just knowing everything. It means having the insight to know what you can do and should do. And perhaps that also includes knowing what you can't do and shouldn't try to do. And I think that's why we need coordinated efforts. And I know that in many places, certainly in the UK, the churches locally and in regions are coordinating or helping to coordinate efforts, particularly for people who can't get out to the shops who are uh, stuck at home um, and who need somebody to help bring them food and so on, or people who are living by themselves, particularly old people, who need somebody just to phone on a regular basis and check up on them and so on. Now, does this count as daily bread in the physical sense or in the spiritual sense? Actually, I, I don't like that distinction. It seems to me in God's good world, those two are meant to run together. The heavenly and the earthly are meant to belong together. We'll come back to that as well, I'm sure. And so I, I want to say, yes, it, it, it is a time to be praying the Lord's Prayer. Every day is a time to be praying the Lord's Prayer in good times and in bad. And if this uh, particular moment highlights certain features of that, well, maybe we needed to catch up with that. And, and are there examples, especially with your studies, research, publications, where we can refer back to the early church, which was a community that responded, that were among the people at the forefront of responding to those in need. Yes, uh, I was reflecting on this because, um, as you mentioned, I wrote uh, recently a book on the life of Paul, and I'm actually writing a commentary on the letter to the Galatians uh, right now as we speak. And uh, uh, when the uh, church in Antioch hears, and this is in Acts 11, that uh, a prophet stands up and says, there's going to be a famine right across our bit of the world. And, and uh, Luke says that happened in the time of Claudius. It's in the, probably the mid-40s of the first century. Um, and th there was another one later on as well in the 50s. Um, the church doesn't say, oh, we've got to figure out what we learn about God from this horrible event. The church says, right, that lot down the road, uh, we know that they're poor. We know that they're being persecuted. They're in need. We can do something to help. Let's get on with it. And it seems to me, instead of trying to get some grand theory about what God may be doing on a kind of a cosmic sense with all of this, it's a very hands-on thing. Okay, here's Paul, here's Barnabas, here's Titus, here's the cash. Off you go to Jerusalem and make sure you deliver the money. And, uh, of course, a lot of things come out of that, but that, that instant practical response is where it's at. And so often in the Bible, when extraordinary and, and often very frightening and unpleasant things happen, Jesus himself says in Matthew 24 and parallels, yeah, wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes, but this doesn't necessarily mean that you can read off the purpose of God from those events. Rather, it's a call to patience, a call to faith, a call to hope, 
a call to get on and do what you are called to do today and tomorrow, rather than come up with your grand theory of how it all fits together. That's God's job. Well, and, and that's a segue into the next question. Uh, how do we live our calling in the midst of these circumstances? So people may look at what's happening and think, this is throwing me off my game, but in reality, is this an opportunity simply to live our calling? Yes, it, it seems to me that, that all sorts of events happen in our lives which uh, nudge us back to what we should be doing anyway. And if we were really on the ball all the time, then we wouldn't actually need these nudges, but we all do drift off this way and that, and things are needed to pull us back. Um, I would differentiate between that ordinary sense that uh, God wants to say, hang on, catch up, get, get with the game here. And this present moment, which is a global um, matter, a, the like of which has not occurred in my lifetime and perhaps never has occurred. Because we live in an age of mass communication, we know at the touch of a button what's going on the other side of the world and so on. Um, and we can see that we are all in this together. And, and it's not like a war where you might hear odd rumors of battles the other side of the world, but you don't quite know what's going on. We really do know a great deal of what's going on. And in that context, this is a call, as I said in an article recently, to lament. The Bible has plenty of lament. The Book of Lamentations is, is, is uh, there as uh, a way of saying, this is where the people of God sometimes have to be. And some of the Psalms of lament, I think of Psalm 88, which is so bleak and dark, and it finishes bleak and dark, or Psalm 89, which starts very cheerfully, and then suddenly everything goes horribly wrong, and the psalmist just has to leave it in God's hands. Okay, Lord, here is where we are. What's happened? Where are your promises? And it seems to me part of the church's calling is to discern the moments which are moments for lament rather than for grand theories, because grand theories can be a way of avoiding the hard work of of tears, of actually grieving with the grief of the world. Um, something I'll be coming back to again, I think that in Romans 8, which is one of the great chapters in the Bible, Paul talks about the spirit groaning within us as we groan within the groaning of all creation. So that it isn't the church's job to sit on the side and say, oh, the world's having a bad time. Thank goodness we know what this is all about. The church's job and the leaders of the church um, and anyone with a Christian calling, part of the calling is to be able to hold on to that pain in the presence of God, not knowing really what we should be praying for at this particular moment, but trusting that the spirit is groaning within us. And Paul says, when this happens, we are being formed in the pattern of Christ. And that, it seems to me, is a very profound analysis. And we often think of Romans 8 as a chapter full of hope, which it is. It's also full of suffering, full of incomprehensible suffering, uh, suffering like Psalm 44. And Paul refers to that a couple of times in this chapter. And we need to, to allow that vision to grip us and say, no, don't leave that vision too soon. Your calling is to stay here, to stay with the pain, like Job, to sit on the ash heap. And Job never got an answer to what was going on. Job's, Job's friends thought they had answers. There are plenty of Job's friends around in the world at the moment. Oh, this is what God is doing. You must have been naughty, Job. Oh, 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 oh. No, that's simply not the way to, ha to tackle this. Um, the way is, is faith and patience and especially lament. You think this present situation uh, reminds us that we need to take a, a different approach to understanding life. Like, in other words, a lot of people will, their ultimate pursuit in life is happiness, no challenges, no stress. But what you're descri describing is not, where's God? God will come and solve the problem and take away all concerns, but rather, this is a different perspective. Yeah. It is. And, and I think what you describe is absolutely spot on to where many people are in the Western world. I think in the ancient world, everybody knew life was a mess. The Christians knew life was a mess. You know, you don't find the early fathers saying, oh, dear, there's an earthquake. What's God up to with this? And they knew that earthquakes and famines and stuff happened. And their job as followers of Jesus was to be there where the pain was, to be in prayer at the place where the world is in pain so that they could then be of help as far as they could where the world was in pain. So that when you had uh, a great plague would strike a city in the ancient world, 
um, all the, the well-to-do people would, would get out and run, um, and the Christians would stay and would nurse people. And, and afterwards, people would say, why did you do that? Um, some, some of you died just nursing us. We're not part of your clan. And they would say, we are followers of Jesus. This is what we do. We are here for the world. And, and I fear that sometimes we Western Christians have got a kind of a Christian version or would-be Christian version of the Western Enlightenment dream, which is precisely sort of health, wealth, happiness, and let the rest of the world do what it's doing. Uh, and um, that's completely upside down and inside out in terms of the New Testament vision. So, um, uh, yes, I think I would say that that even if there were no crisis going on, but maybe the crisis is alerting us to some of that right now. Mm -hmm. Now, you alluded to this a bit earlier, but uh, one of the questions we listed is, in these circumstances, you know, when we see people uh, getting into arguments and supermarket lineups and people being stressed out about shortages of items, and you know, there, there's this uh, real disorientation. Uh, from a Christian standpoint, how do we love our neighbor? How do we show that we're reflecting a different ethos in the midst of uh, a so-called crisis? Yeah, it, it's ironic. When you mentioned this question in a list you sent me earlier, and I thought, isn't it ironic? The way you love your neighbor is by staying well away from them, by giving them at least two meters of a wide berth. And uh, it's actually difficult in a supermarket. I was out um, uh, earlier today, uh, just picking up some, some milk and one or two things. And in the supermarket, it's as though everyone is afraid of everyone else. That's not a good way to be. That's a very unhealthy way. But it is the healthy way at the moment. And getting used to that is a kind of odd discipline. I mean, here we are, we're going through Lent, we're in Holy Week. Lent is a time for strange disciplines to remind us to stand back and and make space for God to teach us different things. And this is a very odd thing we're learning. But it is also a way of respect for our neighbor, that we respect our neighbor enough to say that if I am carrying the virus, I certainly don't want to give it to you. It's partly, of course, self-protection that if you're carrying it, I don't want to catch it from you, thank you. But, but there is a sense of looking at one another and thinking, you are a valuable human being, and I don't want to mess that up. That, that's quite a good thing to think actually in, in in itself but of course where it should be pushing is towards a wise and more integrated uh, vision of the world that um, those who can be medical researchers and scientists should see this as a spur to greater efforts to deal with this kind of issue and those who are global strategists in terms of how the world works together international agreements on health and medicine and so on are they fit for purpose right now I suspect they're not. I suspect they're a bit creaky. So we can't all work on all of these all of the time. Of course not. So we have to pray for those who can. And one of the things that was most striking in my own country recently was the government called for volunteers to do things on around the edge of the health service. Even non-qualified people can, can maybe drive uh, buses to take people to hospital or whatever. And, and they, they got half a million volunteers, just like that. It was most impressive. And, and I'd love to think that a lot of those are Christians. In a sense, that doesn't matter. Um, we all have to see what we can do to help and get on with it. Mm -hmm. you know, another interesting question that perhaps is very relevant in our present environment is, how do Christians show respect for authority? Now, normally we would say, well, that's straightforward. We obey the rules. But in many countries, uh, many of these requirements are almost requests. We advise on social distancing. We advise people to do things. And of course, in the various countries, people actually don't follow these, these guides, these recommendations. So, so from a Christian standpoint, a very practical question, how, how do we treat the respect for authorities? Yes, it seems to me that when there's a crisis, then you do need to ramp up the respect for authorities a bit, as in wartime. If the authorities are saying there's a war on, you've all got to black out your houses because there are bombers coming over, whatever, then you do what you're told um, because there's a sense of, of we're all in this together. Now, 
fortunately, this is a kind of a war, but we're all human beings on the planet are all, in theory at least, on the same side in this war, which is a kind of a sigh of relief. The thought, I've never been through a war myself, and the thought of uh, that there might be malevolent humans out there out to get me is a very scary thought. It's bad enough having a malevolent virus. So um, then respect for authority is a way of saying, I can't see the whole picture, um, maybe nobody can see the whole picture, but the authorities ought to be able to see a bigger picture than what I can see. So even if I can't see why on my street I can't go and do A, B, and C, maybe they're not just saying this for fun. And I think the point about saying this is an advice rather than a, a rule um, is a way of the authorities recognizing that they don't want to become totalitarian. You know, of course, in, in China, they were able, in certain circumstances, to say, we're all going to do this right away, and everybody does, because that's how uh, certain parts of that society work. But in most Western countries, the governments are very reluctant to be seen to be uh, becoming dictators and totalitarian. And, and I think we and the churches have to hold them to account um, when this crisis is over, to say they must relinquish some of the powers over us which they've had to take on at the moment. But that's a delicate balance. And because Western Christians are not usually good at thinking through political theology, because we've kind of taught ourselves that that was irrelevant or whatever, how silly were we, um, we, we need to, to catch up with all that stuff. And I go back to the most extraordinary passage in John chapter 19, where Pilate says to Jesus, don't you realize I have authority to have you killed? And Jesus says, you couldn't have authority over me unless it was given you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over has the greater sin. In other words, even Jesus says to even Pilate that Pilate has a God-given authority over him. And the corollary of that is, therefore, there's a responsibility that goes with that. Uh, and, and God will hold people to account when they're in that re responsible position. Yeah, that, that's a great distinction between encouraging people as opposed to coercing. So there's yeah. a question that came up, uh, which is very uh, UK-centric. Uh, the Queen delivered a message. Mm -hmm. So what was the purpose, if you can summarize for people who aren't familiar with the message the Queen gave, like what was the message and the, the purpose of it, so to speak? Yes, I think, I mean, people have been saying in the newspapers and so on for a week or two that actually the Queen should address this question. Well, the Queen doesn't like to get bounced into uh, just a knee-jerk reaction. and She'd taken her time and Prince Charles had uh, given a message a few days earlier, but she obviously felt that the time had come. And I think it's only the fourth time in her reign, which is um, over 60 years now, when she's felt it um, her obligation to say something like that. And it was a very well-crafted piece. Um, and she's, it's extraordinary, you know, this lady is 93 or something, and it came over very clearly. And it was a message of encouragement, but not in a trivial sense. It was a way of saying, um, we are a people who care for one another. We are a people who muddle through and get by and who look out for one another. And let's carry on being that sort of people. And together we will get through. The Queen is herself a woman of, of great Christian faith, and that is that is widely known, and she has spoken about that in public. And I had a sense of a kind of a gritty determination um, not to be beaten by this, not to be um, cowed by this, but uh, not to be flippant or casual either, and just to say, okay, this is who we are as a nation. We uh, think in a certain way together. Let's just do that and carry on and help out and we'll get through. And I, my wife and I sat there and both found it quite moving, actually. I think a lot of people did. Um, and uh, I know kings and queens are not everybody's cup of tea, um, but uh, actually she did what a head of state ought to do. Mm -hmm. And then in, in, this, in the midst of this type of situation, I think for Christians, there's an onus on... Um, let's say getting good information and and having um, a sound analysis of things. So, as an example, there's a question: uh, the virus apparently started in China, which I guess is a is a fact. That's it's apparently started in Wuhan in a wet market. In certain countries, uh, there's been this quite a leap to say that somehow it's people from China who have created a problem. Therefore. 
uh, it gives rise to certain negative behavior towards them. So from a Christian standpoint, the question be, how do we take a different approach? How do, how do we become this voice of, you know, I, I think in our world, in the midst of a crisis, how do, how do we bring people together, not, uh, not look for ways to push people apart? That, that's really, really important. And I mean, I think one of the things we've seen in Britain, certainly, is that there are certain people in public who have seized upon this crisis as a way of uh, tightening their own political rhetoric. You know, th th this shows that this government was not doing what it should have done five years ago. And I made a speech in Parliament and said they should do it and they didn't do it. In other words, somebody grandstanding off the present crisis to make the point that they would have wanted to make anyway. That, that, that doesn't ring very well. I mean, there may be truth in that, there may be sooner or later inquiries and recriminations, but right now is not the time for that. Right now is the time for hanging in there, for, 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 for holding together. And when it comes to saying, oh, look at the Chinese, they didn't control the way their markets work, whatever, that may or may not be so. I simply don't know. I, I'm not an expert on that, and no doubt they too will have inquiries. But I do note that, uh, for instance, nearly 20 years ago in my country, we had um, a cattle epidemic, the foot and mouth disease. Um, and uh, what happens then is that uh, cows and sheep and pigs can get this. And then the only way that they seem to be able to manage um, an epidemic like that is to cull um, thousands and thousands of animals on farms who are perfectly healthy, but in order to create a safe zone, as it were, and also to put a lockdown on movement of stock, which is devastatingly bad for the farming community. Now, that particular foot and mouth outbreak started with a leak from a government research laboratory somewhere in the south of England. The government never paid up as a result of that. But then you can go around the world and say, well, actually, let's not be too quick to point the finger at the Chinese, because actually we live in a very complicated world and we all make mistakes. And every country has made mistakes of its own. And the important thing is not to say, oh, it was their fault, but to say, OK, let's now take stock, learn from this, move on. And when the hue and cry has, has turned down, then, as I say, maybe we need better interna international health protocols and we need to find ways of signing up to them and staying signed up but also we need to invest far more in um, medical research etc um, and and I'm thinking think back to the Iraq war what a crazy thing we spent billions and billions on smart bombs that would go zooming down people's streets and kill people and often civilians well how crazy we need to be finding ways of actually making people better not smashing them up i know that's naive i know that sooner or later you may say we have to have defense systems etc but we haven't got a great track record we in the west and it's not the time for pointing the finger at others Mm -hmm. well, one of the questions related to the nature of community is quite interesting that in the midst of a pandemic, we talk about social isolation. Well, people who aren't part of a community would be suffering more. So from a Christian standpoint, uh, is this an opportunity to demonstrate the, the nature of Christian community, church community, as something that in our disconnected society, the mainstream is not actually that familiar with. Sure, uh, that, that's absolutely right. And uh, in my country still, though I think even more in America and Canada and so on, um, religion, as it's called, has been downgraded to the status of a private hobby. So that if you want to see uh, a bit of religious news, it'll be on the page in the newspaper where you have a report on a chess match or a gardening column or something like that. This is something that some funny people do at weekends. And, and maybe this is a time for the church actually to be the church in new ways. Of course, that's harder now. We can't meet together. All our churches and chapels in Britain are locked. Uh, Oxford, where I live, has more churches and chapels per hundred yards than anywhere else probably in the country. And you can't get into any of them. So where are we going to meet? And we meet online. Thank God that we have the internet, where you can have live stream services, where you can have live stream Bible studies, etc., etc., but out of that, there needs to grow and is growing as we speak. Um, fellowships of people who are saying now, you, you people live in that part of town. How's it going there? Um, are you working with the unemployed? Are you working with the local social services to make sure people have food, make sure somebody's collecting their medications from the, from the drugstore, et cetera, et cetera. So 
when the church is being the church, the church has often in my country been the ones who've led the way with food banks. Um, and that's certainly going on now. And people take note of that. They say, isn't it strange? It's, it's the churches who are running these things. And the answer is, well, of course it is. We, the church, have been in the business of helping the poor and of medicine and of education right from the start. We were doing that long before any state or government ever thought they should. It's part of the church's calling. Well, there's one uh, question which relates to that. <clears throat> the question was about how the business community, they're lending assistance, but often it's uh, to some degree self-serving. You know, mm. we'll, we'll stay open, we'll keep selling our wares, uh, mm. we'll, we'll do things, but the branding's part of it. So is this an opportunity mm. for the church uh, to give and serve in a way defined by the church, which is serving without expecting anything in return? Yes, absolutely. And I mean, when Jesus went about doing what he did, it was the kind of lavish outpouring of God's creative love. When you read the stories in the Gospels, it's basically like Genesis 1 all over again. God saying, let there be life, health, growth, um, etc. Jesus goes about being that sort of a person. And the church's task is to go about being the community that fosters life, delight, beauty, music, justice, in whatever way it can. And when that happens, the church simply smiles and says, thank you, Lord, that's, that's a great project going on there, without saying, oh, we've got to have our name up in lights all the time. Um, now, of course, I totally get it. If anyone is in business and is frightened that in the present circumstances, you know, there's a lot of businesses going bust as we speak. I'm very much aware of that. I come from a family which, which um, previous generations had a small business, and this would have finished them off. I'm under no illusions about that. Um, so that then I can understand it only too well if people say, maybe if we do this and this, we might just hang on and see this thing through. I get that. And I think we have to pray for one another and pray for wisdom when this hue and cry dies down as to how to help those small businesses either start up again or find fresh ways forward. Because as a society, there's a lot of people in serious pain over all this right now. I get that. So the present pandemic is clearly an opportunity to serve in practical ways. Like there, in well, some ways there's never been a greater opportunity for yeah. the Christian community. A absolutely. I mean, one of the things about hope is that the Christian hope is anchored in two things. One, the promises of God in Scripture, that one day the earth shall be full of the knowledge and glory of God as the waters cover the sea. You know, that's Isaiah 11, it's in the Psalms, it's all over the place in the Old Testament, the promise that God will put everything right at last. The second anchor is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that when God raised Jesus from the dead, that was the beginning of the putting right of the world. We Christians are called to live between the putting right moment being launched and the putting right moment being completed. And that means that everything that we are called to do is about putting things right, making things right in our world, borrowing, as it were, from the energy of Jesus' resurrection and producing genuine anticipatory signs of the putting right of all things at the end. It's been so difficult for Western Christians to grasp that because we've been so fixated on the platonic idea of leaving this world and going to heaven, which is not a New Testament idea. Yes, heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. The idea is God is going to make the whole world over again and raise us from the dead. And for the moment then, what we do in healing, what we do in making creative businesses, what we do in looking after the poor, what we do specially in medicine, these are signs of God's new life against the day when Jesus will come again and put all things right at last. We are not just to wait for that day, we are genuinely to anticipate it in what we do here and now. So really what you're, you're emphasizing is, you know, Christian faith, I mean, of course we have the theological framework, but it's a very practical faith. Absolutely. And at this point in time, there's no better opportunity to have an impact among neighbors, among community. 
Yeah, I'm sure that's right. And in a sense, what I just said is what we should be doing and thinking whether it has an impact or not, you know, whether whether people notice it or not. Because um, like great art, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing. Um, and the, the, the results, if you like, the effect of that is entirely up to God to, to, to say what's going to come as a result. Of it. Mm -hmm. So there's a question here. Um, now, this relates to your Gifford lectures, and maybe mm -hmm. you can explain to people what that is, but uh, how are you discerning the dawn, so in quotation marks, in this moment as describing your Gifford lectures? So maybe describe what that concept means and then... <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Well, it's a big question. Um, and the, the, the Gifford Lectures, as I originally gave them, are available online on the Aberdeen University website. The Gifford Lectures are about natural theology, how you look at the present world and think about God as a result of that. That's very difficult because the world is full of darkness as well as light, and you can easily get the wrong view of God if you just start with bits of the world. But at the heart of that, and I have another little book coming out on this later this year, God willing, called Broken Signposts. Um, I, I run through seven things which we all know are important, but we all know we get them wrong. And that's justice, spirituality, relationships, beauty, freedom, truth, and power. We all know those matter, and we all know that we all mess them up. And that's a puzzle. Um, but I notice but when you read the story of Jesus going to the cross, it's a story of justice denied, of spirituality gone dark, my, my God, why did you abandon me? Of relationships rubbished, um, Peter um, denies Jesus, Judas betrays him, etc. And so on and so on, of power abused, of truth denied. And at the very point where the things which we might say, these are pointing us towards the reality of God, the very point where all those letters down, we find that actually God has come to meet us in the midst of the brokenness of our justice, our spirituality, our truth, our power, etc. I find that one of the explanations for me as to why the message of the cross carries the power that it does. It's not just that we have a theory of how atonement works, though we may do. It's rather that uh, people seem to know in their bones that when you think about this story, it holds together and makes sense of the other puzzles and, and problems and pains that we have in our lives and in the world. Now, that, that's really at the heart of the argument of my book. The book is called History and Eschatology, and was published last year. And uh, it's, it's quite a, a technical book in some ways, though I hope I've written it in such a way that, quote, ordinary people, unquote, will be able to understand it too, history and eschatology. But, um, it, it's really about saying, if you put Jesus in the middle of the picture of what's going on in the world and its pains and its puzzles, then actually it's not a matter of saying, forget the world and look at Jesus. It's a matter of seeing in Jesus the God of creation coming into the place where the world is at pain and somehow taking the brokenness of the world on himself. And then the message of the resurrection is of a world put right and of even the way we know things put right. And I find that profoundly hopeful. And, and that's, that's actually a, an absolutely uh, key issue because when non-believers and even believers look at the pandemic, uh, do they say, well, you know, God, is in control of things, so God caused this, but then what's the, the purpose behind it? And, and there's always this balance, especially in the mainstream, uh, whenever something happens that then uh, people, in a sense, who don't believe in God seem to blame God for things. So how, how do we convey a message of, of hope? I mean, you, you described it, I, I guess, is that just something we have to keep conveying that this is part yeah. of? One of the crucial things here is to recognize why we think the way we think about these issues. And so much of the Western world is conditioned by the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries in the Western world, particularly the movement we call the Enlightenment, and not least kind of Newtonian physics in which everything works um, the way that clocks work. You may even hear one of my clocks ticking in the background as we speak. Um, and the idea then is that if there is a God, and this is where the movement called deism came from, 
God is sort of sitting upstairs and he's the celestial CEO. He's the one who's in charge. So that if something really bad happens, well, God must have meant it. You know, when the Lisbon earthquake happened in um, 1755 and it was on All Saints Day and all the churches collapsed and they were full of um, worshippers and, and Voltaire, the great French philosophe, um, said, now what's all, all this about everything being for the best in a perfect world, etc.? What was your God up to in that? And the wise Christians in the middle of that didn't rush to judgment, didn't jump on the bandwagon of saying, oh, they must have been specially wicked in some way. That's like Job's comforters. The right response to that event always was and is, as I've said before, lament and then the prayer of unknowing. Paul says, we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit groans within us with inarticulate groanings. And if even the Holy Spirit can be inarticulate when faced with the pain and tragedy of the world, then, and if you're a Trinitarian Christian, this means that God himself, um, I say this reverently, doesn't know what to say in the midst of this pain. God did not want to make a world full of tragedy and pain and sorrow and suffering. But the, the sort of God that God is, if I can put it like that, is not a God who sits upstairs and pulls the strings like a puppet master. He's a God who always wanted to be part of his own creation and its life. And when creation and the humans rebelled against him, God didn't say, okay, we'll scrub that. God found the way to come himself in the person of his son to be at the center and heart of that suffering. So that it isn't the case that we first think about God and what God is doing and then fit Jesus into that. Rather, the whole New Testament is written to say, we look at Jesus first, and I think of Jesus weeping at the tomb of his friend, or Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, um, you know, isn't there another way? And um, this is somehow what it means for the one true God to become incarnate. This is why, for me, the doctrine of the Trinity is not just some odd fourth century bit of philosophy. It's actually about discovering and discerning that the true God is very different from the mechanistic celestial CEO God of popular imagination. And I think this is a call, therefore, for us um, who, who wrestle with these issues, biblically and theologically, actually to be more, more articulate about them, to help worshippers and to help people outside the church realize that maybe we've got some things distorted in the way that we Western Christians have been lining things up. Well, that, that's a great segue into the next question I was going to ask, which relates to, you know, what are the, the spiritual lessons that individuals can learn from this situation like a simple thing is it the value of community the value of the faith the, the value of uh, having a, a a means to make sense of life um, so from your standpoint what, what are some of the the practical truths that that maybe become more vivid now yes i, I mean the paradox is that the thing which comes more clearly through this is that things do not always come clearly the way we want them to. In other words, we, we, we are taught uh, the lesson of humility. And again, the book of Job comes to mind, um, that Job's comforters rush in with their explanations. And at the end of it, uh, they, are, they are banished. That was not the point. And the book of Job remains very puzzling. And I think there's, a, there's an important reason why it's there in Scripture. And it doesn't get easily answered in the New Testament either, because in the New Testament, there are so many places where when we read with kind of three-dimensional human wisdom, we say, well, this is really puzzling. In Acts chapter 12, a wonderful chapter, at the beginning of that, James, the brother of John, gets killed by Herod. And he sends an executioner to kill him with the sword. And we think, oh dear, how tragic. And at the end of the chapter, Peter is in prison and he's uh, going to be killed as well. But the church is praying for him and an angel comes and gets him out of jail free. And there he is. Now, if I was James's mother, I wouldn't like Acts chapter 12 very much. You know, how come Peter got out and my boy didn't? And I think one of the things we see in Acts is there is not always an easy resolution. Or think of Paul and, and, and uh, on the boat, on and the shipwreck and so on. Um, eventually, yes, it works out. But there were many points along that journey where everyone despaired, 
where nobody knew what was going to happen next and when they it had all gone horribly wrong and they had to live with that horror for quite some time before god did a new thing and then i mean i'm a historian of of ancient the ancient jewish world and i often think about the fact that for 400 years after the babylonian exile the Jews went on praying, they went on praying the Psalms, they went on uh, reading their scriptures and saying, how long, O oh Lord, how long do we have to wait for you to come back and do what we know you promised to do? 400 years is a long time. And out of that, there is a great wisdom born, which is to say, you tell the story, you sing the Psalms, you say the prayers, you hang in there in the dark, and you trust. And that learning how to Go on singing the psalms in the dark, if you like. That's the lesson of Holy Week, which is where we are right now. Uh, and if this crisis forces us to do that all the more, then so be it. Right. And of course, Holy Week is coming up. And we have a number of uh, leaders who are listening in from around the world. And so let's think first about church leaders. So for pastors, leaders of churches who are listening in now, they have to communicate with their congregations, um, presumably uh, online. But what would be a, a message? What you know, especially in that leadership position, that they can share with with the congregations. Yeah, it seems to me that as we make our way to the foot of the cross, in my tradition, some churches actually do that literally. They have a big wooden cross in church, and people come in procession to it. Mm. Um, one of the things which people sometimes do is is quite literally to to write down on a piece of paper the things which are bothering you in your community at this time and come and simply pin them or stick them onto the cross not in order to get easy resolution but just in order vividly to symbolize the fact that god has in christ come into our midst to take the pain of the world upon himself and part of the thing about good friday is that the disciples were not hanging around on Good Friday evening saying, well, that was very nasty, but thank goodness it's all going to be better in a couple of days. As far as they were concerned, that was the end of the world. That was the end of everything. They were going to be lucky if they got out of Jerusalem alive. Um, and, and they just had to hold on to that pain. And it seems to me helping our congregations into, if you like, the Holy Saturday moment, the moment between Good Friday and Easter, where we really don't know what's going to come next, and feeling the pain, but believing that somehow God has come to be with us in the middle of that pain. That is absolutely central. I had to do that a few years ago with one of the communities in the diocese where I was bishop, which had suffered terribly from the failure of the mining communities um, because of the miners' strike and so on. And there was a high unemployment and all the signs of social disorder, of, of, of child abuse and drug abuse and, and deprivation and poverty and, and, and so on. Um, and, and taking services during Holy Week from Palm Sunday through to Good Friday in that church in the middle of that community um, taught me a lot of lessons, listening to the voices in the community, just about here is this pain. I do not have the instant solution. I can't come in and say, okay, we'll solve that. Here's a nice program which will get us out of this. You have to live with the pain, bring it into the presence of God and hold onto it there and leave it as God's problem ultimately, like Good Friday was, for God to deal with in God's way. When we do that, we may find that gradually, or perhaps suddenly, um, new Easter solutions may occur, but we have to be faithful and, and humble enough to stay in the dark. Uh, in, in the article I wrote a couple of weeks ago for Time magazine, I quoted a, a poem of T.S. Eliot, and wait without hope, for hope would be hope for the wrong thing. That's a very profound insight of Eliot's, written in the middle of the Second World War, that, by the way. Um, in, in, my, in my church, we have a prayer, which is that God will teach us to love what he commands and desire what he promises. And so much of modern Western world uh, wants to tell God to command what we already desire and to promise what we already love. And it's the reorientation of our desires and loves that's the really tough thing. And I think that's part of what Good Friday is all about. Mm -hmm. I, I just call out to everyone who's uh, listening and participating that we have approximately nine minutes left. 
if you, I've been trying to process some of the questions here. If you have any final questions, just put them on the Q&A. We've gotten through a number of them, but uh, we'll get through uh, as many as we can in the last uh, few minutes. Um, so along the lines of what you, you were speaking about in the previous question, in, in response to the previous question, um, how do Christian business leaders uh, have have an impact. You know, there's there's a lot of it's not, it's of course not just physical pain and suffering, but the economic hardship. Um, so, how can Christian business leaders who have an, may have thousands and you know handful tens thousands of employees, what message, whether through their actions or words, can they convey yeah. to people? <clears throat> it's it's really tough this and i i am not a, a businessman as i say i come from a family of small businessmen but but i never went that route um and so i wouldn't uh, dare to tell them necessarily how how they should go about the the, the detail of any of that um but i, I there there are no doubt many things that you have to do in business which as c.s lewis said about boiling an egg the process of boiling an egg is the same whether you're a christian or a pagan you may do it for other motives but likewise the process of running a tight ship of of being a good businessman is basically the same um, and it demands of course honesty and integrity and care and particularly i think we have learned i hope we have learned or are learning um, that care for every member of of, of the team is is absolutely vital it's interesting it's one of the things which i think they learn in the military if you're going to be an officer in the military you learn that you lead by serving that you have to get to know every member of your squad the lowliest the scruffiest the, the people from the worst kind of backgrounds you have to care for them and they have to know deep down that you care for them and for their families and so on because when you say right we are now going to do this really tough thing they will come with you if they know you care for them um and i think we in the church and church leadership that's part of it as well but in in the business um the the the, the, the leaders have to be known as people who have got to know everybody in the organization not lording it over them of course the model of god in scripture is exactly this god is hands-on getting his hands dirty god god comes and and is with his people etc and god delegates to people specific tasks which god wants them to enjoy doing for his purposes and and so there, there are models there but uh, out of all of that it seems to me business is conditioned by so many things which are out of anybody's control global economic issues the price of oil uh, whatever it is and uh, so if a business quote fails unquote that doesn't necessarily mean oh the christian who was running it wasn't a very good christian or wasn't a very good business person or whatever it may just mean no actually we're in this world and sometimes this kind of thing happens um and now what do we do with that so there is a gritty wisdom to be learned in and through all of that and then this, this is a bit of a, a bigger question but how does the christian community speak to the mainstream culture like for example there's the tools of media so for for yourself in the uk is there a christian presence in the media do people consult uh christian leaders as to what's what do you think about what's going on no sadly in the uk um a lot of the media seems to be slanted away from um the christian message and they're only really interested in the church when there's a scandal or or um you know some, some terrible thing has happened they, they, they love it when the church appears disunited and um, because of course if the church is disunited then the wider world says oh we don't need to take you seriously that's one of the reasons why um we have marginalized ourselves by colluding with disunity um it, within the church when the church speaks with one voice then actually people do sit up and take notice like when 20 years ago some of us campaigned and it was a global thing the jubilee 2000 movement for the remission of of the unpayable debt in the two-thirds world and that actually happened the churches lobbied the g8 summit uh, whichever G it was at the time, um, and and we got certain things done, not nearly enough. But um, the church can do that, but 
the media doesn't like it because the media usually reckon that it's their job to speak truth to power and hold governments to account. But actually, if you look at John chapter 16, when the Spirit comes, the Spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And I used to think, oh, that's wonderful. The Spirit will do that. How splendid. Then I realized the way that the Spirit works is by enabling Christian people, followers of Jesus, wisely and prayerfully to speak the truth to power. And we've got to relearn that art. And again, I go back to John's gospel, John 18 and 19, Jesus' conversation with Pontius Pilate, the kingdom of God confronting the kingdom of Caesar. And what are they talking about? Uh, they're talking about truth. They're talking about power. They're talking about kingdom and authority. Those remain absolutely critical issues at every level of our society. And we in the church have to relearn the art of facing down conscious pilots, whether great or small, even if, as happened, Pilate thought he'd had the last word by killing Jesus. But of course, God had the last word by raising Jesus from the dead. Now, that's a tough road to go, but we've got to grasp again the John 16 agenda and to figure out what it means today to argue about kingdom and truth and power with the place with the people in the places where it really matters yeah. I mean that, that's a much bigger issue but it's so critical and of course well represented by the present circumstances uh, there's a question here uh, what is your greatest personal concern at this time oh um I, I mean, since you ask, one of my, I have two sons and two daughters. One of my daughters has ongoing health issues anyway, and she is currently showing um, some of the symptoms of the coronavirus. We, she, on a day-by-day -day basis, she has good days and bad days. So we are just holding on to that precious girl. She's in her mid-40s. Her name is Rosamond. If people want to pray for her, that would be wonderful. Thank you very much. Um, but she is is tuning into the uh, live stream services from her local church day by day and finding that very uh, very healthy and life-giving but that's the one that comes most obviously to my mind um, but that's mm -hmm. a sign we're all in this together we probably all know somebody uh, or, or who, who we're really concerned about and the thing to do is again hold on to this person these people in prayer right so amidst the pandemic situation is clearly not a, a scenario where we're theoretical but obviously there's the practical absolutely absolutely and i think many of us can feel it getting to us you know we've been in lockdown here for for three weeks now whatever it is that's very strange one day feels very much like another we try and establish routines i'm one of the lucky ones i always tend to work from home you can see my my library behind me um, this is where i do what i do so i can do it anyway um, but it is very strange creeping out to buy some milk or whatever and thinking oh dear it's dangerous out here um, that, that's, that's an unhealthy way to be, and we need to pray for wisdom and strength and courage to get through. I know I, know I do. Mm -hmm. Well, we have time for you to offer one final, uh, maybe summary comment or piece of encouragement or, or final, final thought to everyone. Yeah, I, 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 I've just been reflecting on the way in which, as I said before, I've never lived through a war. I did live through the financial crash of, of 2008, which actually affected people in my part of the world where I was then working quite badly. And I think what I want to say is, please let's pray that we won't simply go back to business as usual, that when this is done, we won't say, oh, well, that was very unpleasant. Now let's forget it. I think we all need to say, and maybe the churches need to take a lead in this let's try and think slowly and wisely and biblically about what has happened what we did what was right what was wrong about what we did and particularly let's see if we can together figure out how to be God's people in a more holistic way so that if anything like this or any other great disaster happens upon us we will be just a little bit better prepared but please, in the middle of that, let's not do what some correspondents have done to me um, after the article I wrote the other day and say, oh, it's obvious this is a call to repentance. I want to say, no, every day is a call to repentance, certainly in my life. What is particular about this? 
are we saying that if we all repented, this wouldn't have happened, that those bats wouldn't have done what they did in the market in China? That wasn't what the early church did. Remember, as I said before, in Acts 11, the disciples in Antioch didn't say, oh dear, there's going to be a famine. What does this mean? Well, what should we be repenting of? They said straight away, okay, collect the cash, delegate some people, send them to help. That's the very practical Jesus-shaped way forward. Well, I, re I really appreciated your insights. I think we, uh, well, not we, you, you've been able to address a lot of, uh, lot of questions, which, which we're all very uh, happy with. I have been able to glance at the chat that's popping up on my screen, and, and I see people are praying for your daughter. And Thank you very, very much. And people appreciate your, your wisdom. So um, I, th I, I can't hear it, but I'm sure there's a, a round of applause and, and thanks, thanks around the world. So we're now at exactly one hour. So uh, thank you very much. And for our audience, thank you for not just uh, observing, but participating through questions. And there will be a recording of the webinar available, of course, which we'll contact everyone with. And there's also a response form. We'd love to get your feedback. And uh, lastly, uh, uh, Tom has got many publications, great ones. So, of course, you can find those on Amazon. And um, we thank you very much again, Tom, for your, uh, you. your contribution. Very and good to be with you all. Thank you. And we look forward to seeing everyone at our next webinar. Thank you.